this is my kind of sermon. Um, and today I'm extra honored because you don't have to hear me ramble on. You're going to hear from two of the smartest people I know. One of them is my wife. And so she's going to be talking to you about some cool stuff. And, uh, and my dad, Pastor Albert Hale. Amen. And so they're, they're going to come up and uh, they are going to weigh in on several conundrums out there you've tried to stump us with. So now, just so you know, whenever we approach these kind of questions, um, and really this is, you know, this is our approach to, to all things when we're preaching up here, but questions about the Bible or Christian living and whatnot, um, I'll always try to distinguish for you, this is kind of my pledge to you, I'll always try to distinguish for you uh, something that is uh, my opinion, my take on things, between what the Bible clearly says on a subject. Um, and I, so I hope you know that. And, and so where the Bible speaks very plainly on something, and it speaks in relevant context for us, and you know, meant for us, that's what we follow. You know, we're a Bible-believing church, so that's what we follow. End of story is a Christ follower. That is most important to us, is obeying Christ and living the best possible life that he has intended for us. Um, so, so now a lot of questions where the Bible is not explicit. It doesn't tell very clearly or plainly. We'll look for principles uh, that can help guide us, that will help navigate us through some of those difficult choices we all face. Um, and also, I'll just say this, you know, we've, we've kind of said this before, but not everybody in the church is going to agree on all things. How many of you know that? How many, just you and your home, like you and your wife or you and your husband agree on all things, right? It's pretty rare. So when you get a church of all kinds of, you know, disparate types of people, and we all come in here from different backgrounds, it's very unlikely we're all going to agree on every little bitty thing. But that is okay, okay? I just want to set your mind at ease. That is okay. Now, unity is important, but unity is not based on agreement to everything. See, a lot of people didn't, don't realize that. But unity is not necessarily based on agreeing about every little thing. Our unity is based on all of us walking in love and all of us walking in community as disciples of the same Jesus Christ and all of us coming together and agreeing that we are going to pursue the mission that he's called us to. See, that's what our unity is based on. In fact, some, sometimes if you, if you like glorify sort of this imperfect picture of unity, what it can serve to do is just make everybody be quiet and not express disagreements, right? Sort of pushes opinions underneath the, the carpet. And that's not really what we want here. We want people of love. So our goal is not to, you know, uh, always have just, you know, one voice with no disagreements. Love is the goal that we seek. And we believe we can have love and unity even coming from different places and different perspectives. So we can agree on a lot of different things. You and me uh, disagree on different things, and we can still be buddies, Okay? Is that a deal? Okay. All right. Thank you. Anyway, here we go. We're going to dive in here. We've got a whole bunch of questions today. I was going to call this 20 questions, but we couldn't fit 20 in, so it's more like 10 questions, okay? But uh, we're going to go through these. Uh, some of these will take a few minutes, but we're going to get through them. It's going to be great. Now, we had a whole bunch of questions from you when we were looking at the questions you turned in on Easter Sunday. Lots of fascinating questions, especially ones that had to do with uh, heaven, a lot of questions about heaven. So we're going to tackle a few of these biggies that people want to know. Here's one that's kind of a kind of a biggie. And that is this. Is human marriage only for this life or will we be married for all eternity in heaven? All right. A lot of probably a lot of opinions floating around the room right now. I'll tell you what. I wish we were, for sure. Here's the, here's the one. This is actually one that Jesus d directly addresses. Uh, so we don't even have to guess. I'll give you a little background. In Matthew 22, uh, in verse 23, and it's, it's also found in Mark 12, there was this religious group in the New Testament called the Sadducees. You ever heard of them? The Sadducees. Everybody's heard of the Pharisees. They were the kind of the famous ones that Jesus was always butting heads with. But there was this other kind of religious group, sort of a rival. They were called the Sadducees. And they were distinct from the Pharisees. The Sadducees only saw the first five books of the Old Testament as Scripture, what we call the Pentateuch. They just saw that as Scripture. So all the other books in the Old Testament, they didn't see that. And so because of that, their doctrine was very limited. There's very little mention in those first five books of an afterlife. And so uh, it's mostly about this life, stories about this life and what God is doing in this life. Mostly about how the law is given to us through Moses and how that law should be lived out. So that's their emphasis. And so that was their emphasis. That was what the Sadducees. So they did not believe in an afterlife. They were a Jewish group. 
who didn't believe in an afterlife. Um, and that's kind of a rarity in world religions today. Uh, a group who believes, theists who believe in God, uh, and they believe we should serve him well, experience his blessings, but you experience his blessings or his punishments in this life. And so what would happen back then is historians tell us that the Sadducees would kind of poke fun at the Pharisees sometimes. Because like I said, they had a little rivalry going on. So they would poke fun uh, who the, in the Pharisees who believed in eternity. And they would try to come up with these conundrums, questions uh, that they would raise to try to bring out the silliness of believing in eternity in their eyes. So, that, so one day they come up to Jesus. These are the Sadducees come up to Jesus. Matthew 22. It says that same day they came up the Sadducees, and came to him with a question. They said, Teacher, Moses tells us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. This is kind of a strange system, but this is the way it was. This, the same thing happened to the second and third brother, right? I, I would investigate this wife at, so at one point. <laughs> the same thing happened to the second and third brother right down to the seventh. She outlived them all. Finally... The woman died, Pro apparently a very rich lady. The woman dies. Now, so they ask, they're trying to stump Jesus, and they said, so at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? So the assumption being that marriage is forever. Well, Jesus replied, in verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he says this in verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now notice they won't become angels. That's kind of a myth in our culture. You know, you die, you get your wings. Um, you graduate to the, the choir or something like that. Uh, that that's kind of a, a, a poetic way of talking about the afterlife, but it doesn't have any scriptural merit. Angels and humans, as it turns out, are, are, are like two different kinds of created species. You could think of it that way. So you don't become an angel. Um, but Jesus says we will be like angels in one respect, and that we will not, it seems, be married in heaven. I've even heard my mom and dad argue about this one, right? Right? Because some of us really want to be married, right? We, we're, we're having a really awesome, romantic, beautiful time with this person that we love, and so we don't like this at all. I don't like this one bit. I would rather, you know, continue enjoying this, this bliss that I have um, with my wife, but uh, it, you know, on the other hand, I suppose there might be some people, you got to think in the world, who are staying married mainly to be obedient to the Lord. And uh, they're counting their lucky stars. <laughs> there is death to look forward to, right? It was till death do we part, right? And, and they're like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, so I know for people whose marriage is a struggle, that's probably a bit of a relief. But I hate it. I hate this. I will tell you this. Uh, I know without a fact, without a doubt, that, that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And that he said he's gone to prepare a place for us. And I think that place is going to be amazing. It's going to be an eternity that we can't even imagine. And I don't believe that all of our relationships and our love are just going to dissolve and we won't feel love for our loved ones. On the contrary, I think when we get to heaven, uh, that it's going to be a place where we finally realize and taste true love. And it's going to feel like the first time we've ever really tasted it, that we've only had a shadow of it here on the earth. That's what I really believe. It's going to be pure love for the first time without any selfishness, without jealousy or possessiveness or bitterness or any of those things. So I think our intimacy in heaven in a very holy way, I believe, will be, will be not be more sterile. I, th I think it'll be the temperature of love is going to be raised in heaven. Uh, and it may be that we just, we're experiencing such a, a deep and rich closeness there in the presence of God and, and Jesus that it just can't be boxed into two people. I don't know. But it'll be something uh, in it that's beautiful. I know that. Um, but that's according to the teachings of Jesus. Anyway, I am praying that Mel can either be my roommate or my next door neighbor or something. Because... Uh, I'm not really wild about that, but anyway. Okay, here we go. You ready? See? We did that really fast. Here goes. Question number two. Will we have the capability of choice in heaven? Here's an interesting one. Will we be able to choose? In other words, will we have free will? A lot of people wonder about heaven, and I think we will have free will. We're not going to be automaton robots, right? Now, what some folks are really asking, and what I, what I suspect they're a little bit worried about, is this. Will we be able to sin in heaven, will we be able to sin? And I would say 
you have nothing to worry about. I would say, no, you, you will not have to worry about sinning in heaven. Number one, you're never going to want to. You'll never, ever want to. Number two, there is something miraculous that God does to us by which we actually have a new nature. In 2 Peter uh, 1.4, he talks about this new nature we're going to have. And down here, it's, things are a little cloudy because we're still dealing with this, you know, this flesh all the time. But when we're in heaven, this new nature, it will not be in our nature to sin. Right? It will not be a matter of do you have free will. It'll be as much it'll be as impossible for you as as just becoming a rabbit down here. You know, you it's not about free will. You just can't, right? Uh, so I think it's going to be that much uh, a, a part of our nature. Uh, in heaven, I think our desires are going to be fully redeemed and purified. And Revelation 21 talks about this. We're going to want the best. We're going to want this ultimate fulfillment, this fullness of life, pure love. And, and that is going to be a reality. We're going to experience the reality of everything our heart has been craving every moment down here on the earth. Um, it'll be the place that we want to be every single day. Uh, and, and because it's the place you and I were ultimately designed for. It's what it's, we will find what we were made for when we get to heaven. Remember also, we won't be tempted. There won't be a, there won't be a tempter there because the tempter, Satan, he's going to be locked up for all of eternity. Um, also, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, suffer from any trace of, of mental illness or instability, which can lead, you know, one to wrong choices down here on earth. Sometimes I feel a little mentally unstable and uh, just thank God, you know, in heaven, I'm not going to have to go through this. All right, here we go. Number three, moving right along. Another heaven question, will we work in heaven? Will we have jobs? Do we have to punch a clock in heaven? I actually believe we will be working in heaven. Uh, Genesis 2.5 says that in the Garden of Eden, which was as close to perfection as man has ever realized here on this earth, when God created Adam, one of the first things he did is he took the man, it says he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I don't think Adam was bummed about this. Right? I mean, this was, this was joyful. This was a purpose. It seems strange to some people down here when you talk about working in heaven, because a lot of people hate what they do, unfortunately. You hate what you do, and that's no good. But the truth is, work, in the way that God designed it, the way he meant for it, intended it before the fall, it's a satisfying thing. It gives us purpose. It allows us even to partner with God in his purposes in the earth. We get to partner with him. And I, I just think, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want Jesus walking up to you going, hey, Hey, some folks just arrived. You want to help me serve some food? I'd be like, oh, yeah, right? I mean, this is Jesus, so that's going to be great. Billy Graham, he once said, uh, because the curse has been lifted in heaven, your work will be a joy and never a burden. So I think that's important. Uh, here's something, too, uh, as well. I think we'll always, we'll be learning all the time. We'll be learning. Uh, you're not going to arrive in heaven omniscient. This is kind of another misconception people think about heaven. When they, I get to heaven, I'll know everything. Only God knows everything, right? The angels are in heaven, and they don't know everything. You know, they wait to hear instruction from God. And so uh, God knows everything. The, uh, so the idea that we're going to be learning all the time is, is a fun thought to me. The idea of eternity. We're going to have this eternity to ask questions and to understand the answers, right? We're not going to be hampered by this earthly brain. Uh, like I'm, That makes me excited because you know I have to have coffee to fuel my brain so I can understand anything. Uh, but in heaven, it's all going to become just crystal clear. Um, so I, I just imagine having the curiosity of a child and, and the intellect of Einstein. How awesome will that be? Uh, hallelujah. Um, we know in heaven from, from the description in Revelation, there's going to be animals, there's going to be cities, architecture, food, drink, a lot to enjoy, and a lot to uh, help continue to create. I think God is a creative God. It's just part of who he is. I don't think he's just going into retirement, right? I think he, he can't help himself but to create because he, he's a lover and he's a creator. So I think we're going to get a chance to be a part of that, and that's a beautiful uh, idea for me. So heaven... I don't doubt for a second it's going to be a very creative place. It's not going to be a static, you know, prefab existence where you have nothing to contribute. Okay, so there were some questions about heaven. We had more uh, that came, uh, but we'll have to save them for another time because we have a lot of other things we want to get to. And now I want to introduce Miss Melissa. Come up here. She's, got, she's going to tackle some interesting things here. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to stand back here. All right. The next question, this is a big one. This is, this is a pretty big question. Mm -hmm. How 
can we know God's will for our life? Has anybody ever wondered that, asked mm -hmm. that? What's your perfect will? What am I supposed to do for you? So here's what we want to hear. We want to hear the Lord say, go to India and build an orphanage. <laughs> or we want the Lord to say, write the bestseller that will change people's lives when they read it. Or we want to hear him say, make millions of dollars and just tithe the tenth and keep the rest. We want to hear something very world-shaking, very grand, and we keep our ears open for this. But how many of you know that's really not how God talks to us? It's not how it works. So we, while we wait for earth-shaking platitudes and him to tell us this, this really glamorous kind of mission that he has for our life, did you know that the call and purpose of God is found in the word of God? That his call and purpose for you, his ultimate purpose for you is spoken in the word by Jesus Christ multiple times. And here it is, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What else should you be concerned with in your life if you haven't gotten this down yet? Mm. This is number one. God's will for your life is to love him with everything you are and to love everyone else that same way, right? At least as much as yourself. And once you love God, here's, here's the trick. Once you love him, worship him, surrender to him, seek him, serve him, you recognize your identity in him. You're not mad at yourself anymore. You don't dislike yourself. You're worth something. And you know what that helps you do? Love others like yourself. That's an important step. Um, so now, what does loving your neighbor look like? Seeing every soul with the value and the potential that God sees in them. And that, is that, it's simple to say, but it's not easy. In fact, I've heard I've heard a minister say once, I, I think it was Ivan Tate, you only love people as much as you love the most difficult person in your life. Mm. That's how much you love. So, ouch to that. <laughs> so, if you have not been overwhelmed by this commandment that Jesus tells us, Mark, he says it again in Matthew, he says this multiple times, love God with everything you are, love your neighbor. If you haven't gotten this down you can't even move on to the next thing he told you to do. You can't even move on. Because the next one, if you do it without doing this first, you're going to cause more harm than good. So we do this first. In fact, every other FAQ today, forget about it until you're doing this. <laughs> and then you can move on to other conversations. Good advice. All right. Number two, the next ultimate purpose for your life, he said... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is God's will for you. Your street is your world. Your next door neighbor is your world. Your unsaved uncle is your world. The server at the restaurant, your banker, the grocery cashier, the person you're driving behind on the freeway <laughs> is your world. This is a big deal. We are to be salt and light every day. We got to love first because we can't go share the love of God without knowing the love of God. Love first and then go into all the world where you are, where you are. That's your jurisdiction. Your purpose in life is to share the love of God with those around you. That's your purpose. Okay, as you're walking in love, as you're sharing his truth, his good news with others, there's one more thing he tells us to do, and this is actually out of Proverbs it's trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's he going to do? Hmm. Make your path straight. Mm -hmm. So now a lot of us want to skip to number three. Oh, God gave me all these gifts, and I'm amazing at this. And God, how do you want me to use this? But we've missed the first two steps. Hmm. Because once you love, once you love others and see them how God sees them, and once you're ready to share the gospel, it's only then that you take steps every day, the next right step, he doesn't tell you 10 steps down the line, does he? No, he's tricky like that. He wants you to take the next right step in faith, and he promises he'll take you to that ultimate destination. He'll take you there. And you know what? He will use those gifts inside of you, but he knows those gifts will probably destroy you if you miss the first three steps. So do the first three steps first, 
and you're going to do what he wants you to do in your life. His ultimate will for your life is putting these commands into practice today. Mm. Every day is God's will for your life. Tomorrow is not God's best will for your life. Today is God's best will for your life in doing that. It's life-changing commands, taking them to heart, putting them into action. You do this, you'll not miss his will for your life. Love, go, trust. That's his will for you. Awesome. Boom. <laughs> Drop the mic. There we go. Thanks, Mel. Okay, our next question. We're going to totally shift gears here. You ready? Here we go. Is it okay? We got a lot of questions that are like, is it okay for this? Is it okay for that? What's a sin? What's not? Here's one of them. Is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? Uh, This is actually a a big question with some folks. In some Christian circles, uh, cremation is is kind of looked down upon. It's kind of taboo. My grandmother was that. She she always believed strongly about that. She she was like, you don't you burn me because I want to be around. You know when the resurrection happens. She was she was very adamant about that. Yes, ma'am. In the Old Testament, and here's kind of where it comes from. In the Old Testament, cremation was was, uh, often associated with other practices of other nations. And so the Israelites didn't do it. They didn't do it to to avoid pagan practices. They didn't want to displease God, so they didn't do that. The early Christians in the first century followed suit. They buried their dead in things called, they came up with this word, cemeteries, which actually means, is a Greek word meaning sleeping places, uh, in thinking of the resurrection to come. So, But the Bible, it turns out, actually nowhere explicitly prohibits cremation. In Genesis 19, it says that we came from dust, we returned to dust. Scripture says that when Jesus does return someday, the dead in Christ will rise, and their whole body is going to come back together. Somehow it's going to happen. Whether you're buried in the desert or the bottom of the sea, or you were burned, or whatever it is, the dead will rise. Um, Remember, there's been Christians who have been dead for thousands of years, and their molecules today are part of like trees and cars and probably some, some of them in you. So uh, no matter what, you can trust that Jesus can put you back together again. He knows how to do that. Uh, remember many of the first century martyrs were burned at the stake. And uh, there was never any question. They didn't have any problem believing that God would bring them back on the day of resurrection. So that's just to say if you want to spend a whole bunch of money on a fancy coffin, that's up to you. Uh, but Jesus doesn't need you to. Uh, he can, he's going to put you back together. And I guarantee uh, the people who have passed on, your loved ones, whoever it is, the people who have passed on, uh, they don't care what you do uh, because they're having a great time with Jesus. Or maybe they're not having any fun somewhere else. I don't know. I don't know your relatives. Um, anyway, okay. Was that inappropriate? Sorry. Sorry. All right, keep it going. Keep it going. Here we go. Next one. Is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? <laughs> I heard like instant answers. People are like, I don't even care what the Bible says. I'm just... uh, looking at some statistics, 40% of people between the ages of 26 and 40 have a tattoo. So they're, they're very popular. In the church, they did a, a survey. 61% of the people in, in the church said yes. 16% no. 23% said it depends on the tattoo. So, <laughs> right? Which makes sense. So tattoos can be uh, controversial to some people. Some people are like, that's no, no big deal at all. Some people, it's a very rebellious thing to do. Some people, it's just artistic expression. What does God think? Turns out the Bible does not say a whole lot about it. There is a scripture in Leviticus, uh, 1928, Leviticus. Every time I say Leviticus, like teenage boys twitch because that's like what their moms, you know, shout at them. No, Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, 1928, says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, that would sound pretty clear, but we want to look at the context, right? Because we're, we're, God gave us a brain, so we want to look at the context. The Israelites had just escaped Egyptian bondage, and God is telling them, again, don't adopt the pagan practices of your former slaveholders, right? And, and also, when the Egyptians died, what they would do is their families would cut into their body to show their grief. So it was pagan rituals. These were pagan things, and God said, don't do that. Don't do these pagan things. Um, some people would tattoo, back then they would tattoo on their bodies pictures of pagan gods, and God said, no, don't do that. So this is one of those things. We have to be really careful. We have to not just be literal, we have to be literate. And that is when we read the word, we have to be careful taking Old Testament Levitical law 
literally because Jesus fulfilled the law. That's one thing. Um, you know, the Old Testament also tells us to, to you know, obey the Sabbath, which I think is still a, a good command. Uh, but they also said if you catch somebody not obeying the Sabbath, you could kill them. Well, Jesus' disciples were out picking grapes or something on the Sabbath, you know. And so Jesus, uh, you know, said, I have come to fulfill the law. Uh, in that case, the Sabbath was made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. Um, Leviticus 19 also tells us things like don't cut the sides of your hair, the edges of your beard. So I would have gotten in trouble this morning in verse 27. Uh, verse 9, you're not supposed to wear clothing of two materials. And if we're going to take this verse, Leviticus 19.28, literally, we also have to prohibit ear piercings because that's cutting into your body. Um, so the bottom line here is Leviticus 19 is talking about idolatry. It does have an enduring uh, lesson that we can take from it. Do not commit idolatry. Don't take on the pagan practices of the Egyptians. Some Christian friends of mine argue that, you know, a, a good, cool Christian tattoo can be a good witness, could be a good conversation starter, a public declaration of your faith, all that kind of thing. Um, I will say this, just to consider, before you run out and get a tattoo, uh, think about this. Human beings uh, just naturally can be very judgmental, and so think twice about tatting up in a place where everybody can see it, or you might, might give people the wrong impression, or you, you might hurt you in a job interview or something like that. Just be wise. Uh, second thing, don't make a decision that you may later regret. Uh, if you tattoo, I love Beth on your arm, and then you marry Susie, that's going to be awkward for everybody, right? Even if you change Beth to Baths, that's no less awkward. I love Baths. It doesn't, it's still awkward. So, uh, and also keep in mind what looks really cool on you at 22 may look ridiculous at 62, right? So just think about this. Now, some tattoos look good till forever. Let me just, yeah, I, old guys with the tattoos, go for it. Um, and number three, if you're a young person and you're living at home with your parents and they say no, then no tattoo, right? Their house, their rules. That's the way it goes. That's life. Um, but for most adults, in the end, <laughs> got some applause from parents. Uh, in the end, for most people, you know, what's on the outside of your body isn't the most important thing. It's kind of like a, like a haircut. It's what's inside that matters the most. That's my take on that. Okay, here we go. The next one. Is gambling a sin? All right. My mom is clearing her throat. Yes. I can, I can, she could answer this word, answer this in one word. Um, let, let's, let's kind of take, let's take a look at what, what the Bible says here. This is a controversial one. To some people, it, it is a biggie. To some people, it's no biggie. Uh, so let me say this first. If you're, as with all things, if your conscience tells you not to gamble or to bet or something like that, you better not, because it is definitely a sin for you, according to Romans 14.23. Whether or not the Bible, we'll get into it here, but whether or not the Bible explicitly prohibits anything, there are things, the Bible tells us, that are sins to some people that are not sins to other people because of their conscience. And uh, you, you would, you would, you, you're not allowed to violate your conscience. That is something the Lord gave you. And for some people, for whatever reason, uh, God gave them a conscience, and you, you should obey your conscience. So it, don't, don't uh, be sure you take that seriously. Now, looking through the Word, I have to admit, Scripture does not specifically, specifically condemn gambling, betting, the lottery. Uh, although what scripture does do, it gives us a lot of lessons that we can infer from. Scripture does condemn being wasteful, condemns being unwise with money. Uh, so there's that. But there's no verse explicitly saying gambling or betting is always a sin. Um, for some, it may serve as some kind of harmless form of entertainment. I don't know. But as is the case, I would just say this as your pastor, as is the case with so many things in life, what may start out as just a little bit of entertainment very often uh, becomes sinful, can become dangerous and destructive. Um, so if you come ask me, your wisest move would be to avoid it altogether, avoid gambling. The real questions for you this, ask, ask these questions, when, where, and why? When is this happening? When, when, when is it? If it's once a year, I don't know, you're playing bingo on a cruise ship or something like that. Uh, <laughs> probably qualifies as entertainment. You probably aren't sinning and going to go to hell for that. Um, if we're talking about once or twice a month or a week, you better be very careful now because it's probably an obsession and then it is sinful. Okay, you see how that works? 
Uh, the other question is where? Where is this happening? If you're sitting at a buddy's house watching a game, probably okay. If you're going to a place where most of the women are half naked and drunk and you have to like whisper a password to a guy named Mad Dog to get in the door, um, you might not be where Jesus wants you to be, right? That is probably sin and you're not being a smart disciple, right? Be a smart disciple, smart disciples. Um, and then why? Why are you doing this? Again, if it's just kind of a fun bet between friends, how many pennies can I stuff in my mouth, you know, or something like that? That's, that's <laughs> disgusting. Um, you know, and you can afford it, whatever it is. You're not trying to come, come up with money for the light bill. Okay, maybe versus, holy cow, I need a big score to pay my child support or my mortgage. Uh, or, you know, I really don't want to go to work and earn money, honestly. So this, is, this way, I'd rather win at betting. If that's you, you've just crossed over into an obsession of sin and greed, which is incredibly dangerous. First Timothy, let this be burned in our brains. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So many people, see, have, have wandered. They, they've started with something. It seemed like innocent fun. It seemed innocent, but they've pierced themselves with many griefs. And we have seen gambling, no joke, wreck marriages, wreck homes, families, kids, their future. So there's not much good that comes from it. There's a lot of bad that comes from it. Uh, and, and listen, if, hear, hear this. If more than one person has told you uh, you have a problem, you probably do. And so it's time to get help and stop gambling. Um, however, someone did ask us once, if I play the lottery and I win a million dollars, will you accept our tithe? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, we will. Um, so there is that. Okay. <laughs> now... Go to my mom after church, and she will set you straight, because, and she will correct you on the things that I just told you. Right, mom? Okay. All right. See, we can, we can be in love and unity and not necessarily agree on every little thing. It's cool. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, now I'm excited. Uh, we, we couldn't do a series like FAQ and answer all these wonderful questions without having the wisest man I've ever met. Pastor Albert Hill, my dad, come up and tackle some of these good conundrums here. So, Dad, come on up. Wow. <laughs> Can't play the lottery anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sit down here. I never have had that as one of my vices. Amen. Anyway, praise the Lord. Love you guys. Amen. Isn't it, isn't it fun being able to look at... Uh, things that we face in life and uh, being able to find out answers to our questions from a source that uh, is so it is so authoritative that it is it is not just a truth it is the truth amen and it's so and it good and that's what that's what God's word is to us praise the Lord there were a couple of questions and I know Scott was showing me the list you know, I'm, goodness, it's a long, long list of things that you guys asked, but there were a couple of questions I was going to uh, jump on and try to just give a little um, thought about. One had to do with angels and one that had to do with demons. And I don't know why they gave me these, but anyway, <laughs> angels and demons, angels and demons. But um, let's start with the first one. Uh, the question was, what does the Bible teach or does the Bible teach that all of us have a guardian angel? Have you ever heard that? Anything about that? Of course, the assumption here is Christians, you know, uh, 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 believers. And, and the, uh, the answer is, um, I would love to believe that, but I can't precisely prove it by Scripture. And what we want to do when we, when we teach something as doctrine we want to be able to precisely prove it by scripture, but you know, I would I would love to to believe that. So I'd have to say, you know, uh, does the Bible teach that all of us have a guardian angel? Uh, I'd have to say we're not certain about that. Every and in the sense that, kind of define that. 
in the sense that does everyone have a uh, specific angel that has been assigned only to them? You know, his name is uh, du- uh, Rufus or whatever, <laughs> and, and uh, he's just assigned to the to them you know to minister them i would love to believe that but in fact in our western kind of our western christian uh experience our culture we we have accepted that it's kind of become just something that we accept and uh, particularly having to do with our children you know our children have a garden angel however there is one scripture and you may want to go to to this and look at it but it's in matthew chapter 18 and verse 10 uh, that we quote and it does reference this um there's a lot of, there's different ways that this scripture is, however, interpreted. Uh, it says, take heed. Now, Jesus is teaching. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones or dishonor, uh, abuse, uh, you know, mistreat. He says, make sure that you don't do that to one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Um, so, in other words, here we have this uh, angels, and it's referring to um, uh, a group, um, plural, a group of angels. There is angels, and they more or less uh, are watching. They're they're watching the Lord. They're watching the Father. They're uh, they have like one eye on God, one eye uh, on uh, uh, those that they're caring for, and they're always attentive. Um, to see if there is some indication, some command perhaps, or something that the Lord signals, uh, you know. Because how do you know that, that uh, God is the only one who's omniscient? He knows everything before it happens, right? How many times has God saved your can before it ever happened? He did something to save you. He made a move that either maybe a split second or an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year before it ever happens. So there it is. There, there's a scripture there. But the truth, I would say, for doctrine's sake is we don't really know if the reference is just for the little children, you know, that Jesus had pulled to them at that particular instance or was it referring to all of his kids, praise the Lord. I tend to believe it's for all of his kids, praise the Lord, you know, that God's looking out for all of us. Can I have an amen? amen. Praise the Lord. But taking it just a tad farther, what we do know about angels from the scripture to me, to me is better than just saying that every Christian has a personal guardian angel. Um, and that is that the scriptures teach us that uh, we have many angels that are involved in in ministering to our lives. Many, many angels. We have more than a guardian angel that's ministering to our lives. So it's it's even better. For example, example, at one point, I'll give you a couple of quick things. At one point, you remember Jesus was driven of the Holy Spirit back out into the wilderness, and he he endured all those temptations of the devil. So he, I'm telling you, this was a real time in his, in his life uh, of taking a stand of faith and trust in God and walking the word. And uh, the Bible says that he won that hour of temptation, that time of temptation, 40 days, 40 nights. And after it was all over, the Bible says that um, the devil left and angels came to him and ministered to him. Angels. There was... It's a plural, so more than just a uh, guardian angel. Another time is Jesus was going through the suffering uh, before the cross, and um, uh, he, he told those, his persecutors there, he said in Matthew 26, 53, he says, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? many angels. Well, I'm sure one angel, one good guardian angel could have taken care of the job, but he says, look, I mean, I could just make a call. In the, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion, of, of, a legion referring to the soldiers there, the Romans, uh, was about 6,826 men. That was a legion. He said 12 of those, you know, and uh, so that's over 82,000 big, bad, supernatural, warring angels he could have called on, um, thank the Lord that he went through his suffering. So um, 
here's what we do know from Scripture about angels, okay? Which to me is better. It's a better answer than do we all just have a, a, a guardian angel. In Psalms 91, verse 9 through 11, it says, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall fall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Oh, thank the Lord. Somebody say, thank the Lord for that. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to do service for, to render aid for those that are heirs unto salvation or those that inherit salvation? Psalms 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Praise the Lord. So, real quick, can I throw at you what angels are doing for you? Do you know angels are working for you? Amen. God's for, uh, oh, uh, so I wish so sometimes we could just be like a Elijah's servant, you know, and just see into the spirit world because he, he was able to see, you know, one time. Uh, um, but we do have experiences sometimes, uh, probably. But let me just give you real quick. Uh, angels are involved in protecting humans, uh, according to scripture. Um, and a quick example with that would have been, uh, of course, Daniel. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den because he didn't, you know, he didn't want to violate his conscience uh, of worship to God only. He was thrown in. After it's all over, the king came to him, and he uh, shouted out, Daniel, you're the servant of the most living God. Was your God able to uh, preserve you, to save you? And... Uh, Daniel cried back, O king, live forever. He says, my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lion so that they could not hurt me. So that's just one example. He's in the angels are used by the Lord to protect us. Sometimes angels are used by the Lord to guide his kids, to guide them. Uh, an, an example might, would be Joseph, um, Mary, the mother of Jesus' husband. When uh, he found out Mary was... was uh, already expecting and uh, man he was freaking out it was just like i can't believe this is happening i'm gonna put her aside i don't know what to do he was so worried the bible it, it, you know indicates that he was, had this so on his mind that he went to sleep and when he went to sleep it says the angel of the lord spoke to him in a dream so god sent uh information to him told him it's okay this is what is happening. You go ahead and marry her. And so the angel of the Lord came at God's bidding and helped guide him through. I mean, can you imagine the mess would have been made if he'd have followed through with his plan? No. The angel of the Lord was sent by God to help him. Uh, thirdly, they provide for our needs as God chooses to use them. He can choose to use angelic help in providing for our needs. I, I, I remember... The story of Elijah, you remember one time uh, angels actually cooked him a cake, a meal, cooked him a meal, in fact twice cooked him a meal, gave him water, and uh, let him rest, watched over him while he was doing that. Um, uh, at another time, the story, uh, perhaps uh, a good one is of Hagar, you remember when she was driven out of the camp, uh, and uh, the Bible says uh, in Genesis 21 that God heard the voice of her son and the angel of God or the messenger of the Lord called to her out of heaven and began to show her what to do. So uh, sometimes they provide for us. He provided information to her about a well. The well was right there. She was close to the very answer that she needed to preserve her life, water, right there in the desert, okay? Uh, sometimes they provide information, such as a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. They release that to people. I know it's a work of the Holy Spirit, but they, they do that. Acts chapter 27 is an example there uh, where the apostle um, Paul was on a ship to Rome. The ship was going down, and um, it seemed like everything was lost but the angel of the Lord was sent to him and gave him uh, a word of knowledge. And it dealt with future, word of wisdom, uh, having to do with what was going to happen on that, that they were going to wreck, but it was going to be okay. And uh, they would all be saved if they would follow him. And then um, I, I see in the scriptures that sometimes they just render uh, just general aid, a rescue, deliverance. You remember... Uh, 
Peter was in jail in the book of Acts, and the church was praying for him. And what did God do? God sent an angel, and the angel came, punched him in the side, said, get up, let's go. And uh, the prison was opened up, and he was set free. So in summary, you know, um, whether or not we have a specific assigned guardian angel, it may not be clearly covered in Scripture, but we do know that God has assigned his angelic forces to render aid and assist and care and deliver us as heirs of salvation. To me, the more important question would be, have we accepted Christ? Have you received Jesus? Have you, uh, by faith, uh, asked him into your heart? Have you uh, submitted your life to him? Because, having to do with angels, you know, If you have done that, then the assigning of angels to your life to render aid is just part of being a child of God. Can I have an amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. So maybe that'll answer something about angels. The second one is uh, about demons. Can a a Christian um, be possessed by a demon? Can a Christian be possessed by demons? Uh, demon possession here and a uh, quick answer I would believe from scripture is no a real born again follower of Jesus Christ cannot be possessed uh, by uh, a demon uh, the definition of possessed in itself means to own or to master or to control and um, you know as um, Pastor Scott was making the mention just a while ago there may not be a a book, chapter, verse, you know, that just says a Christian can never be possessed by a demon. But we have many, plenty of, of, of principle that we can draw from, you know, to answer this question. Because when a demon uh, possesses a person, that demon has control over that person's uh, spirit, soul, and body. You remember your three-part being. You're not created just a body. You're created three-part being, a spirit, soul, and a body. The, the, we, we are a spirit. That is, uh, God breathed, in, breathed the breath, the spirit of life into us. We became a spirit soul, a living soul. So we, we are spirit. We have a soul, which is our mind, our will, our emotional side of us. And we live inside a body, as and we will live inside a body as long as we are on on this on this earth. And um, uh, the demon uh, to be demon possessed, a person has to be totally um, controlled or owned or possessed by uh, uh, by a devil. We know that Jesus ran into people like this. He was in the synagogue one time, and and one man just started. He'd been preaching or teaching, and and one man just stood up and just started screaming, screaming, "Leave us alone! Don't torment me! Don't torment me!" You know. And the Bible says he was demon possessed. You remember when he went across the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he landed on the other side? There was this guy came up to him. The first thing, how would you like if you decided to go on a nice little outing in your boat? You land on the lake, and the first thing that you meet is some guy coming screaming, he's naked. And, uh, you know, he's a wild man. This guy was demon-possessed, and Jesus had to deal with that. So we know that it is something. We also know that the Bible tells us that part of our commission, when we go into the world and we preach the gospel, then one of the things that he says is you're going to cast out devils. You'll cast out devils. So there is a reality of people who have allowed this to happen, and there's so many, many reasons I can't get into that. But in the New Testament, we don't really find any, Christ, any, I don't find any instances of Christians being possessed by demons or mastered by demons and, and uh, the demons having to be cast out of them. Now, with that said, though, with that said, uh, we do find examples. We do have situations of Christians that are being um, influenced by the devil, that are being used perhaps because of their thoughts and uh, decisions that they make, harassed, tormented, terrorized by demons. Uh, We'd say for sure that they are um, not possessed, but they are for sure, maybe we use the word 
oppressed or severely tempted, manipulated, uh, mentally tormented uh, by, by, the, by the devil, by demons, by demon powers. And we are warned, in fact, the scriptures warn us that we are um, not to be deceived by doctrines of devils. The devil is a deceiver, and uh, he will come at you in many, many different ways. And primarily in this world, in this environment that we are in as human beings, um, the Bible says that, uh, that he doesn't come at us in any way that is not common to man, things that touch this earth. Satan is the god of this world, things that have to do with this earth. Our soul is in contact with our living condition in this world. Our body is in this. Is, is in this. So those are the primary ways that the enemy tries to gain access to our lives. Then say possess us, but he oppresses people. He tries to torment people. He tries to deceive people. And um, we see examples of that in the Bible. Uh, for example, I guess give you a quick one. Uh, in the book of Acts, and um, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember, they were, everybody was giving their money and giving their land. And the Bible says that the enemy entered into their heart. He entered. Now, the heart there was not the spirit. It was into their thought processes and into their mind and into their attitude. He entered in and he, he um, influenced them to make a decision that cost them greatly. Demas, who was uh, the, one of the primary uh, minister of helps for the Apostle Paul, was serving with him out in the ministry, and uh, and he began to accept thoughts, and these thoughts, you know, um, elevated his flesh. The Bible says that he made came to a decision where he loved the world more than he loved God, and he left the ministry and he went off to just serve his flesh, you know. So we know that the enemy is coming, uh, you know, against people. So we just have to remember. Um, that he comes, there are spirits of, there, there's uh, spirits that will try to primarily attack your mind, attack you in the realm of the soul, the soulical area, uh, fear, addiction, depression, suicide, alcoholism, poverty, sickness, disease, lying, lust, immorality, uncleanness, pornography, hatred, unforgiveness, offenses, strife, deception, Lust, lust of a flesh, uh, intellectualism, pride, jealousy, greed, power, you know, mm, power, etc. And they attack our emotions and they try to establish, they would love to establish strongholds of deception, uh, which can even lead to the destruction of our bodies. Amen. There's tons of scriptures. This is why the Bible tells us um, that we are to realize that we're in warfare. Amen. You are in warfare. Um, you see with Christ, you get born again, your body, I mean, your, your spirit is born again. Praise the Lord. You have new life. You're bought with the price of the blood of Jesus. But then Paul teaches us the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God pulling down of strongholds. Paul teaches us in the book of Ephesians, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And put on the armor of God that you may stand against the tactics or the wiles of the devil. And then he gives you all about the armor of God. So I'm telling you, we, we are, he goes on, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and, and spiritual wickedness. You know? So there are those things that we, that we have to fight. James said to submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee. There is a war there. There is a war there. And we need to stand. So summation, and I'll, I'll, uh, I probably went too far on this, but um, uh, what are we here to do? Um, you know, let's, enemy's going to try to tempt you, talk to you, plant thoughts, deceive you. He tries to do that. So Mel said, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, so we seek to know his thoughts. We seek to know God's ways. Keep yourself clean. When the word tells you this, don't go do, the, do the, something else. You know what I'm saying? What else do we do? We resist the devil. That don't mean just try to build a wall. Go at him. 
another place, rebuke the devil. Rebuke him in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. What else do we do? We, we refuse the lust of our flesh. Paul taught us in the book of Romans. He says, don't yield your body to unrighteousness. Yield your body. Don't be a slave to sin. Yield your body to rightness with God. And you won't be a slave to sin. Those are things that we do. We live imitating the life of Jesus and his ways and his, and his teachings. We pull down thoughts that elevate themselves above the knowledge of God, above the word. Pull them down. Tell them no. Tell your mind, shut up. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. Uh, that's not me. I recognize who you are, Satan. I'll not be deceived. You tell yourself that. And, and pull those fears down using the name of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, you don't have to, you don't ever have to be afraid of devils. Don't be afraid of the devil. But don't go out and play with him either. Amen. Amen. When he comes and knocks your doors, can we come out and play? Say, uh, no, not, no, you're, I have nothing to do with you. The Bible says, Jesus said, he came to the place where the devil had nothing in him, nothing to do with him. Be that way, and you'll stay clean. Amen. Uh, last FAQ, can you handle one more? Last one. As a Christian, should I set boundaries when it comes to the entertainment industry? You, you, shall we go there, people? TV, movies, music, books, etc. entertainment industry. Um, it, I always think 1 Corinthians 10.23, that scripture, what does it say? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, right? Can you do something? You can, should you? Okay. Uh, so this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of an answer, right? Kids are different than teens or different than adults, or yeah, right? And um, this requires guidance. And who is our guide? Don't be scared. Say it. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, our helper, our counselor, right? John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So relax. I'm not going to tell you what you can't watch. I'm just going to tell you you need a guide that's just for you, that deals with what you have convictions about what your weaknesses are. Listen to your guide. Number one, do you hear him? Do you hear the Holy Spirit talk to you about things like that? That means are you undistracted enough to sense his leading? Number two, do you listen? Are you surrendered enough to do what he asks of you? So personal story, I was a film major in college, University of Texas. I graduated radio, television, film, and communications. So if somebody knows a lot about the entertainment industry, it's me. I studied film. I wrote about film. I watched tons of films. I love film. I'm a film buff. From Akira Kurosawa, who was the inspiration for Star Wars people, to John Ford and Hitchcock and Capra and anything that Pixar does. I'm a huge fan. I love film. So um, it was hard when many years ago the Holy Spirit nudged me and said, a film with an R rating is no longer meant for you. That was hard. Who is it? I'm not saying that's what he told you. That's what he told me. It was no longer meant for me. And I thought, but I really want to see the king's speech. Everyone says it's so good. It was really hard. And then I started thinking about it, and I thought, if the world says something is too violent, too graphic, too full of nudity, too full of violence and language, that someone under the age of 17 shouldn't see it, should someone that seeks to have the faith like a child see it? It's just the question. I only pose the question. But here's what we do. Film major, like Jonah heading to Tarshish, we think God's jurisdiction stops here, Right? It doesn't apply to things that are conceptual, like art and entertainment and movies, because 
That's just artistry, and it's just storytelling, and there's no real right and wrong. Because, you know, sometimes life is brutal, and stories are ugly, and we need resolve. And it could be fictional or not fictional, but I need this artistic expression in my life. But sometimes it's not about artistic expression or my right as an adult to watch whatever I want. This was about my coach telling me I couldn't do something anymore. I shouldn't do it. It was about him talking to me. Would I honor that or would I just justify what I wanted? Would I honor it or justify it? I decided to honor it. And not much longer later, and much more than an R rating or a parental advisory on an album, the Holy Spirit took it up a notch with me. And one day I was watching a network sitcom. A regular network sitcom. No nudity, no language, no violence. A cute, funny, regular sitcom everyone watches. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, does this show dishonor me? I thought, it's not rated R. It's not violent. Does it dishonor you? Does it disrespect you, Lord? And I thought about this show I was watching that lacked morality. It lacked virtue. The characters were completely selfish. Uh, It promoted idolatry and materialism and promiscuity. And I thought, oh, my, my cute little show just got real, real ugly. And I thought about my little show, and I thought, you know what, now that you mentioned it, <laughs> I can see how this actively dishonors and disrespects who you are and what you represent. And it wasn't rated R. It was just the show. So should I spend my time watching or reading or listening to something that actively dishonors the things of God? That was my question from the Holy Spirit. This applies not just to some line in the sand you make for yourself. You kind of got to ask yourself this all day long about lots of things. Does this dishonor you or is it fine? You really do. You have to listen to your guide. Do I only watch Christian movies? No. No. I watch lots of movies. Do I only listen to Christian music? No. No, there's lots of music I like. But will I listen to or watch or read something that I feel actively dishonors and disrespects with its intent, the things of Jesus Christ, to the best of my ability? I will not do that. So what about you? I won't tell you you can't watch that R-rated movie. I won't tell you you can't listen to that music. I won't tell you that you can't watch that HBO series everybody talks about, right? I'm not going to say that. Here's what, I, in fact, I'm very careful to not tell you to do what the Holy Spirit told me. Because he's talking to me, not talking to you. He might tell you something the same or less strict or more strict. I don't know. What I am saying is this. Listen to your coach. Listen to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you about something in particular. Because every person is different and every conviction is different. But here's what I do believe. I do believe that nothing before our eyes and our hearts should dishonor the things of God. I just don't think it should. I have a postscript. P.S. If you feel a conviction about something in the entertainment industry or anything in your life, if you feel a conviction and you're kind of struggling with it, I'll say this. Do you have that? The greater the struggle, the greater the idol. The greater your struggle to get rid of something in the life, the bigger of an idol you've made it. And I would say this. It's a God with a lowercase g. You got to cut off its head and get it out of your life as soon as possible. And here's what's going to happen. And it might be hard and it might have brought you such joy. Or you might be like, but I got to see how the series finale ends or whatever it is. God's going to do two things for you. One, you're going to hear his voice that much more clearly if you heed his voice. And secondly, he's going to overwhelm that empty space that you've given him with such fresh, creative artistry that'll be life-giving. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it anymore. I have one more postscript, and I probably don't have a slide for it. Can you watch porn? The answer is no. You don't need conviction about that. It's just a fact. Porn is a soul-sucking demon that abusively tries to destroy your soul. It dehumanizes other people. There's not a blip, not a scene, not a written word, not a movie, nothing with porn in it that's going to give you anything. It's only going to take, steal, and destroy. It's, 
It's a fact. I'm just going to go ahead and say it's a fact. Why would you bring this up? I don't know, because the percentage of people in the church that are addicted to porn is over 50%, and it includes men and women. It's a secret problem. It's a disease. So what would I say to you? If this is your struggle, number one, Jesus Christ can set you free, and he is your only answer. And number two, cut off your resources and enablers that give you access to the thing that you're struggling with. That's what you do. So on that light note, <laughs> come on up, Scott Hale. <laughs> Thank you, baby. I do whatever she tells me to do. <laughs> As you can imagine. Thank you guys so much. Dad, thank you. Mel, thank you. Uh, thank you guys. This has been a good series. Uh, hopefully it's been a blessing to you. And hopefully it's given you some scriptural ammunition, some things to think about, some ways to navigate the conundrums of the world. It's, it's a can be a very confusing place to live this earth. And uh, hey, that's why we need community, right? Community is important because this is how we are supposed to talk about these kind of things. And a lot of these questions, things that we didn't even get to today, uh, we do it in community. We get together. We talk about these things. We wrestle with them together. We pray about them together. Uh, that helps us uh, stay on the right side of God's will when we do that. Praise God. I'm going to pray for you as I'm praying. Our, our prayer partners are going to be coming forward. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father God, for giving us this precious Bible, Father God, to look at, to see you and your character, Lord, to see how you have related to human beings throughout history. We thank you, Father, for, for sending us Jesus Christ to show us this flesh and blood example of how to live, for sending him to save our souls, Lord God, for having him raised from the dead, Lord God, so that we can be free from any kind of bondage, whether secret or not. We thank you, Father God, we can be free from any bondage of sin. In Jesus' name, I thank you that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In Jesus' name, and so I speak freedom on every single person in this house today. We love you, Lord. Help us to walk in your will. Help us all to, to be open to the things that would please you more. Give us the courage to take those steps and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this out of my life because it, anything that gets in the way between me and my relationship with my Father is not worth it. It's not worth it. We thank you, Lord God. We praise you for your goodness and your mercy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I speak blessings on every person in this room, Lord God. Bless them head to toe, Father God. Bless them in their health, in their finances, in their relationship with you, Lord. Help us all to grow closer to you as we're growing closer to each other and growing closer in our relationship with the world outside these doors, Father. Let us be disciples who make disciples. Let this be a church where no one walks alone. We praise you for that. We speak it into existence in Jesus' name. Amen.